0: Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming uh, to uh, Cato's Institute's briefing entitled Defining the Tax Base, the Real Challenge for Tax Reform. Uh, I am Peter Russo, Director of Congressional Affairs at Cato, and I'm very pleased to host today's event. In January, Chairman Hatch of the Senate Finance Committee initiated another effort to get a tax reform deal done. This is no easy task. The last five years, especially, have seen a bewildering variety of tax reform proposals. The Lower the Rates, Broaden the Base School brought in Simpson bowls, widened coats, and the camp plan, none of which cross the finish line. Many economists, like those at Cato, favor something more radical, standalone consumption taxes or plans that replace the progressive income tax itself. The flat tax, the fair tax, the national sales tax, and the X tax are examples. For decades now, there has been a constant hunt to find new things or activities to assign a tax rate to. We have already seen gas taxes, cigarette taxes, and for a short time, soda taxes. Now, ideas for a carbon tax and, worse, a value-added tax, which pile on new streams of revenue to our existing income tax regime, lurk under the surface. There's an area of stone that's been left unturned in the hunt for new revenue sources, and one can't help wish that those energies were diverted to something more productive. Of course, high taxes and increased complexity are only a symptom of a larger problem, the inability of elected officials of both parties to control spending. Demands for more spending in one area or another are a constant refrain in Washington, and successful resistance has been largely unsuccessful. For the most part, this year's budget appears to be an achievement, but that's only half of the coin. And without much-needed reform to entitlements, this achievement will be short-lived. But in addition to controlling spending, it is essential to get the economy growing at a rate comparable to that of previous recoveries. So many of our current woes on the economic and social front would be alleviated by robust economic growth. I shouldn't have to sell the benefits of this, but it would be easy to imagine millions of people returning to the workforce roles and taking themselves off food stamps and other anti-poverty programs. However, it does not appear that this particular mix of elected Republicans and Democrats are about to come to any agreement, so that provides an opportunity for us to discuss considerations of our own. Today, the assembled panel will dial in on an important aspect of tax reform, defining the tax base. What is income? What is currently taxed? And what are the effects? What reforms are necessary to both reduce complexity and also prevent the tax system itself from being an impediment to economic growth both here and abroad? To my left is Daniel Mitchell, a senior fellow at Cato who specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. Prior to joining Cato, Mitchell was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He's been published in numerous outlets, including The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times, He's appeared on all the major networks and is an internationally known expert on these issues. He earned a PhD in economics from George Mason University. David R. Burton is a senior fellow in economic policy at the Heritage Foundation, focusing on tax matters, securities law, entitlements, and regulatory and administrative law. Burton was general counsel at the National Small Business Association for two years before joining Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies in 2013. He previously was chief financial officer and General Counsel of the Startup Alliance for Retirement Prosperity, a conservative alternative to ARP. Burton received a Juris Doctor degree from the University of Maryland School of Law. He also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from the University of Chicago. Finally, Jason Fichter is a Senior Research Fellow with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on Social Security, Federal Tax Policy, Federal Budget Policy, Retirement Security and Policy Proposals to Increase Savings and Investment. His work has been featured in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times and others, as well as on broadcasts by PBS, NBC and NPR. Fickner earned his BA. from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, his MPP from Georgetown University, and his PhD in public administration and policy from Virginia Tech. Each will speak in turn for 10 to 12 minutes. after which we'll open it up to Q& a
1: So let's please welcome Dan Mitchell. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Tax reform oftentimes, uh, especially when people are talking about radical plans, uh, such as the flat tax, uh, people think, well, it's all about the tax rate. Should you have a system with high tax rates based on redistribution and class warfare, or should you have a tax system based on one low rate? Today's panel is really looking at another big part of tax reform. And that's understanding the definition of taxable income, and in particular, looking at two competing theories of how to tax capital income. And I have a couple of PowerPoint slides that I think will help uh, make this issue uh, more understandable about defining the tax base. Uh, And as I said, the issue of tax rates is important. Uh, For those of us who want uh, certain types of tax reform, we think it's very important to have a low marginal tax rate on productive behavior. Uh, Why? Because, presumably, work, saving, investment, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, those are good things in our society, and when you have a high tax rate on those things, you're going to discourage people uh, from being productive. And actually, I I have an image I found on the Internet, all sorts of great things on the Internet. Uh, I think this really boils down to what the essence of supply-side economics is. I agree with politicians. When they say, we need higher taxes on tobacco because that will get people to smoke less. I mean, I don't agree that we should actually try to control people's private lives, but I agree with them on the underlying economic analysis. When you tax something more, you get less of it. And as our little philosopher is pondering, well, if higher taxes on cigarettes will lead to less smoking, won't higher taxes on work lead to less work? Or for that matter, higher taxes on saving and investment? won't that lead to less saving and investment? So the issue of tax rates is very, very important, but our topic today is not a challenge for tax reform, it's what I think is the real challenge for tax reform. Because if you look at some of the proposals that are out there, and you can go all the way back to the 1980s to things like the Nundiminici USA tax and things like that, so much of what really happens when we're talking and debating about tax reform in Washington is this fundamental discussion over whether or not we're taxing all income, whether we're taxing it zero times, one times, or more than one time, and as the bottom bullet point uh, suggests, I think one of the major issues that we need to wrestle with is how do you deal with the tax burden on income that is saved and invested? Uh, there, are, of course, are and and uh, David and Jason will both be talking about some of the specifics in this. Uh, in this discussion, but I'm trying to focus on sort of the underlying theory, and so we can get our minds about, around what the real debate is about. Uh, so let's, uh, let's look at what I think it's really a fight over. There's two competing tax bases out there. There's probably actually lots of them, but in the big picture fight, there's two. There's the Haig-Simons Tax Base, which actually is basically uh, undergirds our current system. And it's certainly the tax base that the Joint Committee on Taxation and GAO and CBO and others use when they analyze the tax system. And the Hague-Simons tax base basically assumes that there should be double taxation, that government should not only tax income but also changes in net worth. You can contrast that to the consumption base. And the consumption base at its essence, at its core, is simply whether or not you should treat income equally whether it's consumed today or consumed in the future. And what is consumption in the future? It's just another way of saying saving and investment. Now, why is that an important issue? Well, it's an important issue uh, because right now, we don't have that neutrality between current and future consumption. Why don't we have it? Because we impose all this double taxation, triple taxation on income that is saved and invested. Now, I should point out that a consumption-based tax because this oftentimes for uh, for neophytes isn't understood, it doesn't mean a tax collected at the cash register. Yes, a national sales tax is a consumption-based tax. Yes, a value-added tax is a consumption-based tax. But so is the flat tax. So is the X tax that Peter referred to. Uh, basically, if you're giving all saving and investment in the economy IRA treatment you're moving to a consumption-based tax because you're getting rid of double taxation. You're either taxing people when they first earn the income or you're taxing people when they consume the income. But if you get rid of double taxation, you have, by definition, a consumption-based tax. And when you look at, say, the flat tax versus the national sales tax, they're basically different sides of the same coin. They both have the consumption base. The only difference is the collection point. The flat tax taxes your income one time at one low rate when you first earn it, and something like a national sales tax taxes your income one time at one low rate when you spend it. But the bottom bullet point is the important thing. Neither of them have double taxation, which, of course, is pervasive in the current system. You won't be able to read this chart, uh, but but it shows the difference between a consumption-based tax and the Hague Simons tax. The right side is basically the Hague-Simons tax base, sort of what our current system is. The top green box is you earn income. The first blue box is you pay tax on that income. And then the second green box is you have after-tax income. What are the two things you can do with your after-tax income? You can either consume it today or consume it in the future. If you consume it today, that's the left side, the government pretty much leaves you alone. But what if you consume that income in the future? If you save and invest it, that's the right side. And between the capital gains tax, the corporate income tax, the double tax on dividends, and the death tax, it's possible for that single dollar of income to be taxed over and over and over again, which means, of course, there's not that neutrality between current consumption and future consumption, which, of course, means that there is a tax penalty or a tax bias in the system against saving and investing. Now, why is that a bad idea? Well, it's a bad idea because every economic theory, even socialism, even Marxism, every economic theory agrees that capital formation is a key for long-run growth and higher living standards. Why do workers get paid? They get paid because they produce. What determines how much workers produce? A lot of it depends on the quality and the quantity of the machinery, the equipment, the technology, the capital that they work with. So when you impose extra layers of tax on saving and investing that aren't imposed on immediate consumption, you are creating a tax bias against capital, and you are therefore reducing the capital stock in the country. You are hurting the economy, uh, and you are, of course, ultimately hurting workers because they won't earn as much because they won't be as Productive, it makes no sense to impose a tax bias uh, on productive behavior, especially productive behavior in the form of saving and investing, since every economic theory. I mean, the the Socialists and the Marxists, don't get me wrong, uh, they have crazy ideas. They think the government should do the saving and the investing, but at least they agree that capital formation is key to long-run growth and higher living standards. In some sense, I think this image sums up the difference between a consumption-based and a Hague Simons base. If you wanna harvest apples, what's the smart way to do it? Do you pick the apples off the tree or do you chop down the tree? If you're taxing capital, you're chopping down the tree or at least you're sawing off the branches depending on the degree to which you're taxing capital. In a smart intelligence system where you're trying to maximize income and prosperity for an economy in the long run, you wanna pick the apples but leave the branches and leave the tree, so that you're going to get another crop of apples next year and the year after that and the year after that. Uh, whereas the mindset of the, of the hague Simons tax base is, well, not only do we want to tax the apples, but let's at least saw off some of the branches. Why? I'm not sure other than here's the political challenge. This is why we have a hague Simons tax base. We have it for two reasons. First, class warfare. Who has a lot of saving and investing? Or who does a lot of saving and investing? Rich people, by definition, who has a lot of capital? That that defines why you're rich. So if we decide that we don't like rich people for political reasons, or we decide that they're the easiest target, and uh, and we're politicians trying to extract revenue from the productive sector of the economy, well, you impose taxes on capital, because, yeah, you can impose high marginal tax rates, uh, but a lot of times, rich people also have a lot of capital that might not be easily accessible if you're simply imposing a high personal income tax rate. Uh, So that's one reason why we have these destructive policies that penalize saving and investing. The other reason, I think, is just ignorance. How many of us have seen Warren Buffett uh, make his uh, silly claim that he pay- his secretary pays a higher tax rate than he does? Well, the only reason he can make that claim is because he wants us to forget that any capital income he's receiving has already been taxed at the corporate level, not to mention the fact that the income was taxed before he first then invested it uh, in-, in some income-producing asset, not to mention the fact that it will then be subject to a death tax. So If you simply focus on one tax in isolation and you ignore all the other taxes in the stream that are affecting that same dollar of income, and and a lot of people, I I genuinely don't think it's malice or class warfare, they just don't understand the difference. They think, oh, look, a rich person got a capital gain, therefore we should tax it because isn't, isn't that fair? Well, except if the only reason you got a capital gain, which, by the way, only came about because you took your after-tax income and invested it, but why do assets go up in value? They go up in value because of an expectation in the marketplace that it's going to generate more income in the future. But when that more income in the future actually happens, it will be taxed. So whether you're doing it forward-looking or backwards-looking, the capital gains taxes a form of double taxation. And so part of the purpose of this panel, and I'll go ahead... And, uh, and, uh, and stop at this point. We want people to understand that double taxation exists there's no actual ambiguity about it. If we had someone up here from a left-wing think tank, they would agree. That's double taxation. There is a consumption-based system. There is a Hague-Symons system. They would simply argue that a Hague-Symons system is justified for reasons of revenue collection, redistribution, or something like that. But they'll agree with the notion that there is double taxation. They'll agree that Warren Buffett is being double and triple and quadruple taxed, even if he wants us to believe that it's not actually happening. So with that, I'll go ahead and stop and turn the floor over to David Burton.
2: Thank you, Dan. Uh, I've been asked to talk about two things, uh, investment or capital cost recovery and the international tax system. So let me start with investment. Let me ask you a question or uh, or pose something for you to think about. If you buy a million-dollar machine or a $100,000 machine to make widgets, and then your $100,000 machine in the first year earns $200,000, have you made any money? most people would answer that question no you haven't really made the money until you got at least the cost of your machine back and one additional dollar so this is the basic core idea underlying the the fact that capital expenses should be deductible like other business expenses you see that in section 179 for small business expensing <clears throat> but it should be applicable to all investment and let me try to explain some some reasons why dan mentioned that that uh, investment is key to productivity and increasing real wages of ordinary people. We see that all over the world in many, many different cases. But in the United States tax policy, the last time that we did anything significant in terms of moving towards expensing was in 1981, the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981 under President Reagan. And that gave us something called the Accelerated Cost Recovery System, which was a substantial move towards expensing because businesses could deduct their capital expenses more rapidly. Uh, As a result of that, you saw an investment boom that was almost unequaled in our history, and that laid the foundation for a a very extended period of strong economic growth and one of the most robust, dynamic recoveries that outlasted the Reagan administration. So this is a real-world effect that can have a tremendous positive impact on the American people. In more formal terms, when you delay the uh, uh, deduction of capital expenses, potentially as long as 39 years under the current system, you raise the cost of capital. You mean that a business has to earn more money pre-tax in order to justify the investment. And as a result, you get less investment, you get less productivity growth, less incorporation of new technologies, and lower real wages than you would otherwise get. And there's a, if, if you have a flat tax type environment or the current tax system, you move towards expensing. A sales tax does it similarly by simply not taxing uh, as consumption uh, the purchase of a machine. But either system gets you to that result. Um, A couple other things. uh, There's a secondary consideration that the current system plays favorites. It picks winners and losers. So by giving some types of investment relatively accelerated deductions or expensing, and others as long as 39 years, it distorts the capital stock. So you have two questions. One is, do you want to broaden the capital stock, make it deeper, have more investment? But then the question is, where does that flow? And our current tax system distorts it tremendously and leads to a less efficient capital stock, which also has an adverse effect. And any of the fundamental tax reform plans, the flat tax, Lee Rubio, anything that moves towards expensing solves that problem as well. Uh, let me just briefly touch on one other question. We hear a lot about lowering the rates and broadening the base, and in, and that is good. A consumption tax is broader than the current tax system. but In the business sector, we got rid of most of the true junk in 1986 in the 86 Tax Reform Act. If you get rid of things that are not treating capital investment correctly, there's only enough base broadeners in the corporate side to drop the rate about two points, maybe three. So the problem we face today is that we're an outlier. We have inappropriate levels of business taxation compared to virtually every other industrialized country. We have the highest statutory corporate rate. We have among the very worst treatment of investment. And then we also are the only major industrialized country that taxes its businesses on income earned everywhere in the world instead of just income earned in the United States. So when you combine those three things and a number of other things, you realize that we, we basically have a, a serious problem. We're making the United States among the least attractive places from a tax perspective to do business in the industrialized world. And we, we see that. I mean, our businesses are no longer as competitive as they once were, and we need to, to repair that damage. So with that, let me move to the international. <clears throat> the U.S. taxes U.S. corporations on income earned throughout the world. Now, We also provide a credit for foreign taxes paid, but that credit is limited to the U.S. tax rate times the foreign source income. And it's really not that simple, because the foreign source income is divided up into a whole series of baskets, potentially hundreds for any given country, based on the type of income and what country it was earned in. And then you have a complex series of rules allocating income and expenses between the United States and abroad, for purposes determining whether the income was earned within the U.S. or abroad, which is necessary for purposes of the foreign tax credit and other reasons. But the long and the short of it is we tax U.S.-based businesses on their income throughout the world. So one, of the, one way to avoid that is to merge with a foreign corporation. If you merge with a foreign corporation, then the new combined entity is only going to be subject to U.S. tax on its U.S. source income. And there, as long as we do that, we're basically driving corporate headquarters functions outside of the United States. So when you see Anheuser-Busch merging with InBev, it's really simple that, that, to decide that the new corporate headquarters is going to be in uh, Europe. And ask the people of St. Louis how that's working out for them. When Chrysler and Mercedes merged, even in the old days, the new corporate headquarters was in Germany. Not in the United States, and so on down the line. And the only way we're really going to prevent this tremendous push to move corporate headquarters from the United States to abroad, and in effect control the businesses to abroad, is to move to a territorial system that taxes U.S. businesses on U.S. source income. But it has a number, and, and having a corporate headquarters has a number of positive effects. Obviously, you have the higher-paid corporate functions in the United States instead of abroad. But it's also proven as an empirical matter that U.S. businesses tend to sell more goods made in the U.S. to their foreign subs than if the businesses run offshore. So <clears throat> somewhat counterintuitively, it's better for U.S. exports to have a territorial system. And I guess the last point I'd like to make on, on the international stuff is that the U- U.S. multinationals have become fairly good at gaming the current system. It doesn't raise that much money. It almost gets into the category of a fiction, and that's because they're able to manipulate intercompany pricing, the pricing of intangibles such as trademarks, royalties, and, on, and, and other uh, like copyrights, patents, so on and so forth, and lastly, interest you know, whether they borrow abroad or borrow in the United States, so that they can basically increase their foreign tax credits beyond what is theoretically the right answer and drive down their effective tax rate on foreign source income. So moving to a correct system, a territorial system, that no longer encourages these uh, inversions would probably not cost any money. So we have a system that is basically having all these adverse economic effects on the competitiveness of U.S.-based businesses, but isn't raising any or very little money. And if you address the intangible questions and the interest allocation questions, you, you, you can do that and not lose any money. And in terms of, of uh, how to do that, uh, cha- former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Chairman Camp, had a number of good, good proposals, that would solve the issues. So these are somewhat difficult problems, but they're solvable problems, and it would put the United States back into the mainstream, and that's what we need to do. We need to move our business tax system to a more competitive tax system. We need to reduce our corporate and and uh, pass-through rates. We need to move towards expensing of capital expenses rather than biasing the system to it, and we need to move to a territorial and a border-adjusted tax system. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jason.
3: Thanks, David. Good afternoon, guys. Um, So there's an old joke that if you lined up all the economists end-to-end, the one thing you would not get is a conclusion. But we're actually up here in a lot of agreement on tax policy, on what's wrong with taxes, the tax system, individual and corporate income tax what needs to be done about it, um, and it kind of puts me in an odd spot because my two colleagues have said most everything. So sort of in honor of the first week of baseball, I'm going to back clean up and bring the runners home and kind of hit some points that they touched upon and re-emphasize the importance of it and why it's important we consider tax policy, the tax base, and uh, talking about tax reform. We are also now getting into the start of the presidential sort of election season, if you will. And with that, candidates come out with their various tax plans, their misinformation on what taxes do and don't do, who pays taxes and who doesn't. And so it might be a good time to review some of the important issues about tax bases and rates and margins as we start getting into the silly season of the presidential election cycle. So with that, I wanted to highlight what both David and um, Dan said about how economists generally prefer a broader tax base with lower marginal rates. And this was very important because it really is the tax rates that, dis- that drive the decision at the margin. Is at the margin where we decide whether or not to work that extra hour, whether or not it's too expensive to invest that extra dollar, whether or not because taxes are so high, leisure is now less expensive, and we decide not to work at all. You'll hear some discussions about corporate tax and whether or not we have the highest statutory tax rate. We do. Some will say, well, our effective tax rate is lower, but the effective tax rate is because we have so many exemptions and gimmicks that we're allowed to gimmick the system that it disincentivizes some behavior and incentivizes others, and that creates inequities and bias in the tax code. And again, it's not the effective rate that drives the decision, it's the margin. So we really have to focus on the margin and lowering the corporate tax rate at the same time broadening the base. We also have a question that comes both individual and corporate of what do we mean by a tax expenditure? You might have heard a few years ago that if we just got rid of all the corporate and individual tax expenditures. We could raise $1.3 trillion that would have taken care of our deficit at the time, and then we're all set. Well, tax expenditures aren't all loopholes, and it's important to sort of point this out because certain preferences in the tax code um, are actually like government spending, um, but others actually aren't or are designed to take away a certain inefficiency in the tax code. Um, So, again, sort of giving an example, the exclusion of employer-provided contributions for medical insurance premiums. We all get an exclusion. Our employer pays for our health care premiums. They're not taxed on it. We're not taxed on the benefit. That might be considered a tax expenditure that increases spending on health care, but the preferential treatment of capital gains is actually designed to offset some of the inequitable double taxation that both my colleagues talked about that exists since capital gains are taxed first at the corporate level and then again at the individual level. So the taxation of capital gains is an important tax policy issue, but it's not spending that's designed in the tax code, and hence it's not a tax expenditure. Certain administrations, presidential administrations, some like this administration have called it a tax expenditure, others like President Bush hasn't. So if you look at OMB's documents for the budget and they list the tax expenditure budget, it changes from administration to administration, so it's not consistent. It's based on one's political perceptions where they think a tax expenditure actually is. Um, David mentioned the Tax Reform Act of 86 and how a lot of the junk we had was taken out. It's important to note that's true. The Tax Reform Act of 1986 is considered the most successful tax reform act in American history and also the worst tax reform act in American history. We now today have more exemptions in the tax code than we did before we passed TR86. And so the lesson there is once we start broadening the base and lowering rates, we still have the public choice problem where people come to Capitol Hill and say, that's great, but give me an exclusion for this benefit, for this activity. And we end up then that brace broadening starts getting narrower and narrower again. Um, turning to corporate tax for a minute, because we might actually have a chance to do corporate tax reform even under this president. This president in the past um, election cycle has actually called for lowering the corporate tax rate to 28 percent. Other candidates have gone 25, but that might be an area for a compromise if one is to happen before the election. I'm not sure, but it could be. But keep in mind, the United States corporate tax code severely distorts market decisions and the allocation of resources. Um, the tax code hampers job creation and impedes both potential economic growth and potential tax revenue. Um, And again, my colleagues mentioned this as well, many developed countries are both reducing their corporate tax rates and restructuring their corporate income tax code to make them simpler. The United States federal government appears to be taking the opposite approach. Um, I'll note that some states in the United States have also been lowering their corporate tax rates and offering competitive tax packages to attract businesses and investments. And foreign competitors are doing that as well. A high corporate tax rate and numerous temporary provisions in the tax code increase both uncertainty and cost for American business. This drives competitive, profit-seeking corporations to minimize their tax exposure and defer income overseas to lower-tax countries, and as David mentioned, even for some, to reincorporate outside the U.S. Even worse, some U.S. companies take out debt in order to pay dividends to shareholders in order to maintain income overseas to avoid bringing it back at the high U.S. corporate tax rate. Unless the United States reforms its corporate tax system and lowers its rate, our country will fall further behind in global competitiveness. Um, Again, with our tax rates much higher than other countries, U.S. corporations must turn their accounting departments into profit-maximizing centers. Uh, David mentioned the idea of transfer pricing. Companies now need complex financial engineering tactics to minimize revenue losses uh, using tax code preferences, and this is why we're so interested, again, in broadening the base and, and lowering the tax rate. Because through various transfer pricing arrangements, accountants can allot income and capital to different countries, minimize tax liabilities, and thus improve their competitiveness. Um, exhaustive economic research clearly proves its most basic effect. The more you tax capital or labor, the less you get. Uh, it also makes clear that incentives matter. So a successful war- reform will lower the current individual and corporate tax rates on both. Um, the U.S. tax code is, again, excessively complex and riddled with special interest loopholes. Tax rates that treat similar activities unequally can distort consumer and investor decisions, which damages the economy. The current tax systems treatment of corporate capital investments is emblematic of these problems, something David mentioned as well. Shifting to full expensing, allowing businesses to write off all expenditures in the year they are purchased, would offer an even ground for capital investments. It would also greatly simplify the tax code, increase investment, and reduce the ability of politically favored industries to gain targeted tax benefits. One thing we should not do – and I don't know if my colleagues mentioned this – we shouldn't raise taxes. I mean, that's just going to make matters worse. Uh, We shouldn't raise them at all. The U.S. corporate taxes are among the highest industrialized world. Again, this increases businesses' flight to lower-tax countries, taking their jobs, money, and tax dollars with them. And there is much research to support the negative consequences of raising taxes on economic growth. Uh, Research by economist Christina Romer, who was the former chair of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers. and David Romer suggests a tax increase of 1% of GDP reduces output over the next three years by nearly 3%. Further, according to research by Jeffrey Myron, both macroeconomic and micro perspectives suggest that higher taxes slow economic growth, thereby limiting the scope for revenue gains. So again, we're looking at the idea that if we even lower rates in some ways and getting rid of some of these loopholes, we actually could raise revenue. And David mentioned that as well, that it might cost us actually nothing in the long run. It's also important to keep in mind something when we talk about taxes, especially corporate. The corporate tax is actually, in part, a tax on labor. Uh, while the Joint Committee on Taxation, the Congressional Budget Office, recently changed their instance assumptions on the corporate tax, which now assumes that 75 percent of the tax is paid by owners of capital and workers bear 25 percent, it's important to point out that this is actually a change. Uh, a Congressional Budget Office working paper uh, pointed out at one point that slightly more than 70 percent of the burden actually falls on labor. So, we're trying to increase taxes on corporations. All we're really doing is passing that along to workers in the long run, or to consumers. Um, regardless of one's view on the instance of corporate income tax, one of the keys to successful reform is to move away from a spending system that decide, depends upon easily manipulated income tax system. Again, tax reform should lower rates, broaden the base, eliminate loopholes, uh, and this will increase stability and lead to greater economic growth. Um, I know my time's running short, and I want to leave some time for questions. Uh, but I want to point out something that. Um, Dan mentioned, because it's very important, he, and I laughed when he said it was about Warren Buffett and how he pays a higher tax rate, or he pays a lower tax rate than his secretary. That became also a political issue. But again, this also belies the importance of the income tax and the corporate income tax and who bears it. So to put it sort of in math to get it, get it straight, the statutory corporate tax rate is 35 percent. Um, if a business has one dollar of profit that wants to distribute to its shareholders, It is now first taxed 35% on that $1. That leaves 65% of retained profit that can go to you as a shareholder. But we now have a capital gains tax rate of 20%. If you're in a higher income bracket, it's 23.8%. They do pay on that 65 cents. That means your effective tax rate is over 50% if you're in the highest tax bracket. So we're already taxing capital at 50%. That's one reason why we have a lower capital gains rate, to first take into account the fact that we're taxing at the corporate level. One thing we might want to discuss is whether or not we should actually get rid of the corporate income tax altogether and just start taxing income all the same. So capital gains and dividends would be taxed at ordinary rates. We'd have no corporate income tax at all. That would definitely increase savings and investment and also make the tax code more efficient and make businesses more profitable and more willing to invest in the United States. With that, I'll turn it over for questions. Thanks, guys.
0: All right, so I wanted to entertain uh, as many questions as possible, so let's uh, state your question in the the form of a question and not in some other way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you, sir. Um,
4: All this uh, just assumes that taxing uh, taxing consumption is a completely good thing, and that it it obviously is better than our consumption tax, than, uh, than taxing uh, taxing income, I don't I don't dispute that. But there's a bias in all these. I think that you're biased in all these consumption taxes that you're biasing against people consuming, and so you you sort of switch the bias in favor. You know, now we're not biased against investment, but now we're essentially being biased against consumption. My suggestion would be is that you should tax the undeveloped value of the land, the Georgian tax, in which I don't think there's a bias one way or the other. And I'm a, My question to you is why Why do I never hear about the, this, this tax? It's
5: so superior
4: and it's po- it would be politically much easier to get because there are gonna be lots of people who don't want the consumption bi- biased against they're gonna come out of the, they're gonna go crazy
1: if they ever try to get a consumption tax. I, I think I've read that a couple of small communities in Pennsylvania take that approach, but I've never heard of a major jurisdiction like a state, a province, a country uh doing it. And so I confess I've never really looked into it. But but I wanna disagree a bit with your premise. A consumption tax is simply an income tax with income properly defined, i.e. no double taxation. And that's why I said that, that a flat tax has the same tax base as a national sales tax. They differ only in the sense that you don't have these extra layers of tax on income that is saved and invested. And so you're getting rid of a bias, but then you have neutrality. Now, of course, At the end of the day, I think it was Adam Smith who reminded us the purpose of all production ultimately is consumption. That's why we live. That's why we work. I mean, we want to consume things and enjoy life. Uh, But to me, that just brings us back, and I guess to the point Jason was making about we should have a smaller tax burden, not a higher tax burden, because whether you're looking at it from the point of what's your incentive to earn income, or whether it's you're looking at it from the perspective of what's your incentive to consume your income if your tax rate is very high, in other words, if to sound like a policy wonk, if you're driving a bigger wedge between your pre-tax income and your post-tax consumption, that's what's doing the damage. You want to make sure that the marginal tax rate on consumption, income, productive behavior, however you want to phrase it, you want that tax burden to be as low as possible.
2: Let me just um, mention one quick thing. If you, the income tax taxes consumption just like a consumption tax taxes consumption. And if you think about it, if you want to spend $100 at Walmart tomorrow, how much do you have to earn? earn, If you have a 50% tax rate, you have to earn $200. So the income tax is, in effect, a consumption tax. uh, It it just also taxes savings and investment again. So it's not as if consumption is somehow off the hook in an income tax. Well, it's very important that, that, that people generally understand it, that it and maybe it's, it's, you know, Dan put up, talked about Hague Simons and the sort of a uh, liberal definition of income, but the, if you actually go back and read it, their definition is consumption plus changes in net worth, right? That's one way to think about it, but the core thing to think about is how much do you have to earn pre-tax to spend money today, and it's... And, and if, if we have a 50 percent tax, if you earn $200, you spend $100, so it taxes consumption. And then if, if, uh, it's a, if you want to consume in the future, uh, they also tax that consumption plus whatever you earn by deferring it. So that, that's really the difference between an income tax and a consumption tax. It's not the tax treatment of consumption it's a, or current consumption. It's the tax treatment of future consumption.
3: Can I just add something for you to think about as you start just thinking about the concepts of reform, what are better tax systems? So, there are two sort of principles that economists try to apply when thinking about what's a fair tax code. And, of course, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. But one concept is ability to pay and trying to figure out who has the ability to pay a tax. And the reason a consumption tax is important or ability to pay is that the fact that you are going out and putting dollars down, assuming you do it the cash register, dance, right, you don't have to but the idea is you're making a choice to consume something suggests that you now have the ability to pay, where other measures like the Hague Simons, which actually looks at capital gains and actually would tax appreciated, unrealized capital gains, Mm -hmm. you might have the ability to pay it, but don't have the cash flow. So one of the things to look at when we're talking about property taxes or unused value of land, it's not just the ability to pay that's important, but it's also is there a cash flow on a transaction basis that allows someone to have the ability to pay based on a transaction point keep that in mind.
6: Uh, I'm happy to hear about the tax reform concept and also simplification. But when you look at tax reform, you have to look at expenditures. And when you look at issues like um, subsidiz- subsidiz- subsidizing companies and corporations, and it looks like, and actually I was told by a government official, that more men are getting these subsidies, white men. And they're actually spending a lot of taxpayer money to get women and minorities to get these subsidies. So then I asked, I said, so what if we got rid of the subsidies to these companies? Would it be fair? And he said, well, it would be fairer than the way it is now. And I mean, when you look at making life equal with taxes and also expenditures, don't you think that a simplification process would be easier? Because more women that start businesses, they use their own credit card and get these, these small business loans that are complicated because there's a process and they don't have the time. Do you think simplifying the tax reform and also cutting back expenses
3: expenditures and spending less, is a safer way to go? Well, I will just off off the front, simplification is hugely important. So anything we can do to make the tax code simpler reduces compliance costs. One of the studies I did that says compliance costs, hidden and unhidden, are about a trillion dollars a year. And you're right, the time it takes to figure out how to get a loan, how to pay for it, what investments to make. If we decide to basically make ethanol a tax advantage, why don't you start a business doing ethanol production? That might not be the best thing for the economy, but maybe it's a better tax decision. So we should definitely try to, again, find rates that broaden the base by getting some of these loopholes that allow us then to lower the rate. And, again, it's important to point out, though, that not all tax expenditures are loopholes. Some are actually designed to get away some bias in the tax code. But, again, the lower the rate is, the less valuable these exclusions are in the first place. So it is very important. Uh,
1: I obviously agree that both the tax reform and expenditure reform uh, have have the – hold out the promise of of making life a lot simpler, although simplicity isn't everything. There's an old joke that Barack Obama, instead of the 10-line flat tax, he has a two-line tax reform plan. What did you make last year? Second line, send it in. Uh, But all joking aside, one of the advantages of the comprehensive tax reform plans, if you get rid of the depreciation schedules of today's tax code that David was talking about, you replace them with expensing— that's vastly simpler. If you get rid of the capital gains tax, that's vastly simpler. It turns out that a lot of the good things that should be done to eliminate double taxation and move more toward a cash flow uh, based tax system also get rid of some of the most complicated provisions in the tax code. You have a simple territorial tax system, it gets rid of all the mess and complications of the baskets that David talked about in terms of worldwide taxation. And by the way, I want to mention one thing about worldwide taxation. A lot of you have probably seen stories about companies keeping $2 trillion offshore. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because we have a policy called deferral that enables companies to at least de- to delay this second layer of tax imposed by our worldwide tax system. You get rid of worldwide taxation, you move to territorial taxation, guess what? companies no longer have any incentive to hold money overseas. They'll have the ability instead to automatically and quickly deploy that money to wherever it's going to generate the most value for the economy. So the complications that we have are a function of the bad policy, and the bad policy that we have uh, gives us the the weaker economic performance and the reduced competitiveness. So there's sort of a win-win-win situation when you do good
3: policy. I'd also add out that, I mean, I'm sure Dan is not advocating for just the repeal of deferral. He's advocating for changing it to a, to a territorial tax code, because President Obama would like to change some of the deferral rules mm-hmm. so that corporations actually get a higher tax revenue or tax base coming in, and that's not what we're trying to do. That to further Well
2: One last thought on the complexity side to address this. The complexity of the system, Dan was rattling off some, the list is endless, is it, it disproportionately adversely affects small firms and startup firms, and large firms uh, can grapple with the complexity, but also, you know, calculating the, the, the provisions, the cost of cap- making these calculations does not increase linearly. They're disproportionately large for small firms. So that's a huge burden on entrepreneurship and firms try, trying trying to, to launch their businesses or grow their businesses. Yes,
5: sir. Uh, I, I'm Jim Hickerson. and of course the the title is the tax base and that's obviously a a critical issue but I've also heard at least three of you up on this panel talk about the deleterious impact of the corporate tax rate which people know is the highest in the world Uh, um, and I've even heard a a discussion about simplification and and complexity so those are three issues therefore, the base the rate and complexity slash simplification. On on the off chance that there is an impressionable staffer from the Ways and Means Committee here, uh, uh, what might the four of you, and I really would like to get all four of you uh, opinion on this, uh, like for him or her, the staffer, that is, to take back to Chairman Ryan and say, Chief, this is what we might accomplish in this
3: Congress. Well, I'll start with that one. We'll go left to right. <laughs> um, so the first thing is for, forget for a minute what can be accomplished. Let's do that second. The first thing to take back is, is the lesson that only people pay taxes. Corporations are fictional entities, so the burden falls on people, not, not corporations It get passed through. Second, then, the ideal rate, and I'll use the word rate for corporate taxation, is zero. That's the ideal rate. Now, what do you take back as what can you get done this Congress? Um, I think what you can get done is the narrative that we are not competitive with our trading partners, and that to be competitive, we should be at or at least equal to, which means the rate should be no higher than twenty-five percent. Um, and and that I would is still higher than I would like, but at least that gets you to saying we are now being competitive with our OECD trading partners by being around their average. So we're not being higher, we're not being lower, we're being average. That seems to be a narrative that I would sell.
1: Um, I'm actually going to disagree in one small sense with what Jason said. We want income to be taxed only one time. So therefore, we shouldn't have both the corporate income tax and the double tax on dividends and capital gains. So theoretically, you could move the corporate income tax to zero and just tax dividends and capital gains at ordinary income tax rates, I think administratively it's much simpler just to tax the income once at the corporate level and not have the double taxation on individuals. Uh, There's one corporate taxpayer that's a lot easier than tracking down potentially hundreds of thousands of shareholders. Uh, But it's six of one, half dozen of another. It's just simply a question of 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 administration. In terms of your question, Jim, let me cite an example. Ireland is one of the few other countries besides the United States that has a worldwide tax system. But nobody really complains about it because Ireland's corporate tax rate is only 12.5%. And I think, I forget whether it's David or uh, Jason made this point, if your marginal tax rates get low enough, then some of these distortions no longer have a big value. Let's imagine we're going back to 1980 and the Jimmy Carter top tax rate of 70% was still there. Well, a tax deduction was very valuable, Because for every dollar of tax deduction you could find, you could lower your tax bill by 70 cents. By the time we got to the end of the Reagan years and the top tax rate was 28 percent, well, guess what? Were you really going to go through as many gymnastics and hire as many lawyers and accountants and tax planners and so on and so forth uh, to, to benefit 28 cents? No, you you had much greater incentive just to go out and earn income and be productive without worrying about the tax consequences. So the rate is critically important. And I say that even though the whole purpose of this session today is to also focus on the fact that we should fix the base. But in reality, they're both important. Have the lowest possible rate and make sure you have the base defined correctly because we don't want to penalize the saving and investing that every economic theory agrees is so critical for long-run prosperity.
2: Let me uh, briefly address that the, and, and sort of bring us back to what's the point of tax reform. The point of tax reform is primarily to grow the economy, to increase the welfare of the American people. And the potential gains from fundamental tax reform are on the order of 15 percent of GDP, uh, it, which would make the country feel like it was in a boom that it hasn't experienced since the 80s. And that would that would occur over a period of about ten years, but but be front loaded. Most of that gain, most of that potential gain, comes from the improvement in business taxation or the taxation of of capital. And so, reducing marginal tax rates on pass-through entities and corpor- C corporations is critical. But getting the tax base right is also critical. And the to the extent we're dropping marginal rates by getting rid of unwarded preferences like wind energy credits or low-income housing credits or the employer-provided health insurance or take your pick, it's pro-growth. It improves the welfare of the American people on the whole. To the extent you're dropping corporate tax rates by further extending the period over which you you have to deduct your investments, whether it's pro-growth or not is a very iffy thing, and it probably isn't. So you lose all the growth effects by broadening the base, by raising the cost of of capital, uh, and and further extending the capital cost recovery uh, periods. And that's one of the problems that that uh, the camp proposal had is a, a, a large portion of the revenue that was raised in that proposal was raised by lengthening capital cost recovery allowances or doing things like making advertising deductible, amortizable over a period of, if I recall correctly, 10 years. If you do things like that, you're not doing something that's meaningfully pro-growth. And we have, have to buck up and, 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 I think, understand that we are now way out of the mainstream in the industrialized world. We tax our businesses too heavily. We need a business tax cut. And we're not gonna be able to drop the rates hard and become competitive, get to that 25% average, by the way, it's just an average, uh, by, by uh, broadening the business tax base because there's not enough deadwood or inappropriate tax preferences in the corporate code to do it. I, I think the answer to that is not very. Most of the macroeconomic simulations looking at tax reform tend to simply look at the capital deepening effect, i.e. the enlarging the capital stock. And But, I mean, I, to, to, to sort of get wonkish as Dan put it, there is no doubt that you get gains from a more efficient allocation of capital as well, Basic price theory would lead you to that result, uh, and as far as I'm aware, the the mirrorless tradition of of optimal tax uh, analysis doesn't look at that issue either. It tends to just look at the, the relatively simple, you know, size of the capital stock, a uniform, homogenous capital stock, and and I think it would be good if if we could get people to some degree to focus on on the efficiency gains from, from a more efficient allocation of capital, because that's certainly there. Now, the simplest way to get there and, and accomplish both results is expensing. All right? uh, alternatively, you have to come up with with some economic depreciation concept that that is accurate, but that is, I think, conceptually difficult to impossible. Because that, to, to, to know the actual decline in the, in the future present discounted value of the asset, you have to have robust secondary markets, and we don't in, in physical capital goods. So I don't think you can ever solve that problem in terms of getting it right, except by expensing.
1: Let me add one thing to that. Uh, it doesn't address your question of how do you estimate it. But remember, every distortion, preference, exclusion, credit that's put in the tax code is put in there to encourage people to make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make because they're not economically sensible. So if we're bribing people into making economically senseless decisions, there has to be an economic cost to that. Now, what's the cost of, of all these ethanol and wind credits and stuff like that? We have to estimate, okay, How would those resources otherwise have been used, presumably in ways that were better for the economy? But, again, it would be good if someone went out and measured that. Maybe that will be a project for Jason. Let let, let
2: me add one more thing just to to sort of show how weak that literature is. As far as I know, the only people that have have actually looked at this, uh, other than I think some folks within Treasury that haven't published, is the Halton Wyckoff study in the early 80s, right? But if you really look at that study, uh, they, they, they they looked empirically at the length, but in terms of the pattern of deduction, they assumed their result with geometric decay. So in a, in an important sense, nobody has ever got empirical information on this because there is no empirical information because we don't have active area markets and widget-making machines. And therefore, you, you basically have, a, the, the proponents of an income tax have an insoluble theoretical problem. They're always gonna get it wrong because there's no information. They have to guess. The whole tax system is built on a guess.
3: I would just add one more thing, um, because this discussion is very enlightening, and we're also having discussions discussion about dynamic scoring. Uh, I would rather not force Office of Tax Analysis the Treasury or Joint Tax on the Hill to do gymnastics and try to figure out how to make something fit in a dynamic scoring window. What I think we do know is we are seeing the corporate tax base in some ways erode because of the high corporate tax rate and the uncompetitive nature of our tax system. So, Jim, one thing I also would have staffers take back to their members is that even on a static score, if if corporate tax reform costs money, we should still do it because it will be better in the long run. And I think we all know that in our guts. So we should stop focusing on the static revenue loss and just get this done.
0: Um, So this week, uh, Senator Paul announced his candidacy for – uh, running for president and last week we saw Senator um, Cruz do that. It looks like on Sunday uh, Hillary Clinton is going to put her name in and then I think the week after officially so now is that it was oh, That's off? what I heard on the news today uh, And then next week it looks like Senator Lee will throw his head in so Rubio. or Rubio, right Rubio So what do we know about their tax plans? <laughs> Anything that, Dan,
2: well, that's yours. Well, well Sen- Senators Lee and Ruby are going to be speaking at the Heritage Foundation on April 15th about their plan, um, but, and and we released a paper analyzing it. Uh, it's uh, very, very positive on the business side, um, and and I think people people should look at, at what it does because it's a, one of the more constructive plans. And then, I mean, you, you may want to talk more about this, but as far as I know... Uh, Senator Cruz and Senator Paul's plans are very 30,000 feet type flat tax plans without much detail. And so f- I don't believe uh, Secretary of State Clinton has, has given any details about what she would do on on tax.
3: I, I would add just to David's point about Senators Lee and Rubio. their Their plan probably is the best one we've seen come out of. Capitol Hill in a while on the business side. Um, and they're also not trying to hamstring themselves by being revenue neutral. Uh, they're actually going for what would be more efficient tax codes for economic growth, and I think that's important. All
0: right, one last one. All
4: right. <laughs> um, you were talking earlier about what are the goals of any tax reform complexity. And having worked on the income tax for years, and corporate tax specifically, I can tell you that any, that any income tax is going to be complex. There is no, what we could, it is so complex now that, well, even if they, they cut it in half, it would still be incredibly complex. You know, tax people forget that if you talk to the average person you know, about simple tax concepts, their, their eyes are gonna spin over. They don't understand any of that. And even other attorneys that i talk talked to, or I'm attorneys, you know, can have a really meaningful discussion about taxes. My point is this idea of getting rid of complexity without getting rid of the income tax to me is, and whatever you want to call it, if an income tax, that's a consumption tax. If you start off with income, yet that determination is an abstraction, and a yeah. very broad abstraction. Well, I, I,
1: You definitely highlighted a big obstacle, but I disagree with you because if you look at, say, the Hong Kong flat tax, because it basically doesn't have any of the double taxation, because it's a territorial tax system, no capital gains tax, no death tax, all those things, the Hong Kong flat tax, which has been around for 60 years, so it's very, very durable, uh, the thing is remarkably simple. Is it as simple as the pure ha Rabushka postcard? No, Uh, But other flat tax systems around the world, you know, you find some of them where it's literally a page back and forth. Uh, So if you're dealing with the tax base correctly, as I said before, that automatically eliminates so much of the complication. If you're a business and you don't have to figure out things like depreciation, you simply put down on your form, these are my gross receipts, these are the wages I paid, these are my raw material costs, these are the investment expenditures I made, what's left is your taxable income, you can actually have a dramatically simple system. Uh, In In other words, I don't think the definition of income is complicated if you have a consumption base. If you're going to go with a Hague-Simons base and then mix it with 102 years of congressional micromanagement, well, then you get to the system that you correctly describe, which is a big giant mess. Uh, but it, well, it, it can be solved. Whether it will be, of course, I mean, we'll be up here when we're 110 giving the same presentations. Uh, let
2: me just mention that the sources of complexity in income tax that goes away with either Lee Robio or the Hall Rabuska flat tax or the, the the so-called new flat tax. It's really a cash flow tax and of course a sales tax. One is no no depreciable lives. You just deduct capital expenses. Two is inventory accounting. And for any of you who have been in business, accounting for your inventories is a mess, right? You have to track the and then through. And it's particularly a mess if you take the tax law seriously, you have to capitalize in various costs under 263A. Before you know it, you've employed an army of accountants, okay? That goes away because you just deduct them when incurred. Right. Then international. All the income sourcing, expense allocation rules, the deferral rules, foreign tax credit rules, separate baskets, all goes away. But in Hall Rabushka uh, or under a sales tax, financial transactions are also irrelevant to the tax base. So you no longer have to take into account capital gains. Or or your bank accounts or interest expenses because interest is neither deductible nor taxable and and so, on, and, so on, and so on and so on all the major sources of complexity in the income tax fall away with any of these plans because because they're they're really consumption taxes. Yes, you would in 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 in, in a flat tax you would in a sales tax it would be irrelevant, but it also doesn't matter so much anymore. Uh.
0: And with that, our hours come to a close. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, I'll do one little housekeeping thing. On Friday, April 17th, uh, at Cato Institute, we'll have a, another event called Should the GAO Audit the Federal Reserve? So hopefully, you can come out to that if you're interested in monetary policy. Uh, thank you, everyone. Let's thank our speakers.